There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we left off last time. I'm going to give you a little brief review, bring you up to date on the book of Matthew uh, in very short terms. Chapter 1, uh, Ma Matthew is one of the disciples, as you know, and he writes this book. He was a very good record keeper. The reason we know that is he worked for the IRS, in a sense. He was a tax collector, um, but he was considered a traitor because he was Jewish and he worked for the Romans collecting taxes from his own people, the Jews. Therefore, tax collectors were hated uh, for that reason. So um, he uh, writes this book proving to the Jews that Jesus indeed is the Messiah and the one who is worthy to be called the King of the Jews. So in chapter one, we get the genealogy of the man, Christ Jesus, proving that he has to be a man, and he is, oh, someone's calling me again and again. Hmm, well, I'm going to have to hang up on that one. Oh, no sound, they're saying. Wow. Hmm. And I see the sound there. Mute. Nope, unmuted. Let's see if the sound is working better now. Sound? No sound. It still says for Zoom. Can you hear now? Somebody do this if you can hear. Yes? Can you hear? Now they can hear. I don't know what did it, but it worked. Praise God. All right. Well, sorry about that. Um, so we see that he's a human being in the genealogy. He's through the line of David, both on his father's side, Matthew, and his mother's side. And as a result, he is eligible to be the king of the Jews. But also in that chapter, we find out he has a virgin birth and the Holy Spirit overcomes Mary, and that's how she gets pregnant. Therefore, he's the son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Two natures, fully God, fully man, eligible to be the king of the Jews. In chapter two, um, we, let's see. Yeah, that's right. Chapter two is a preview of the reception he'll get. Strangely, in chapter 2, he gets worship as a little toddler from Gentiles. The Magi come and find him. But at the same time, there's a powerful king who hates him and wants to kill him and kills children all around Bethlehem. It's a preview of the fact some will worship, some will want him dead. Uh, in addition, chapter 3 is John the Baptist's ministry, the forerunner predicted in the Old Testament that comes to announce the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's baptizing. We said last week it is not a Christian baptism per se, because the, Jesus hasn't died on the cross, risen from the dead. There's no receive Jesus as your Savior. In fact, John doesn't know who the Messiah is until he sees him, we learn in, in uh, the Gospel of John. But it's a baptism of repentance. The very first word out of John's mouth is the word repent. Same thing with Jesus, same thing with the disciples. They're to preach repentance, the turning away from sin, a change in one's life uh, coming to, to God through repentance. Then we receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior. But Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is also eligible to be the king and the Messiah because he passes the test that Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, the test of temptation, a test that you all and I go through as well.
So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, okay, amen. And you got sound, right? Somebody do this. So, okay, good. Beautiful. Not sure what happened there, but we're all good. Um, so this is the temptation of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. The first test was in a garden for Adam. Do you remember? And Adam had all his needs met. He was not hungry like Jesus is. And Adam and Eve had only one commandment, and they blew it. They failed the test. We'll see the results of that in this chapter in just a little while. Let me see what other notes I have. Just a reminder, Matthew starts writing after about 400 years of silence from God. No prophet came to Israel, none of that. God is sort of upset, well, more than sort of, with Israel and the fact that they're going through the motions of their religion, but they're not sincerely seeking God. All of a sudden, the final Old Testament prophet shows up, John the Baptist, preaches repentance, the coming of the Messiah. He ends up pointing out Jesus in another gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here we are in chapter 4. Uh, Matthew is much more concerned with this idea of proving Jesus is worthy to be the king and the Messiah. As a result, as we said last week, he skips over the childhood. Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. Um, it's interesting that Jewish children at 13, they, a, a boy becomes a man, bar mitzvah, girl, woman, bat mitzvah. But at 12, when Jesus was 12, remember in the temple, it was... Um, customary for a 12-year-old boy to learn his father's business. So he should learn carpentry, which he does from Joseph. But he's at the temple at 12, learning his father's business at the temple. Kind of cool. Okay, so um, this is the first mention of Satan in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, I should say. Um, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 explain how he got to be Satan. He was an exalted angel. He was a musician. You got to watch out for those musicians. But anyway, and he fell because of his pride. He wanted to be like God. You're going to see some of that in this chapter as well. Let's dive in. Um, let's see, let me move that over there. Okay, let me read just one section and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let's just stop there and do those two verses, and then we'll get into the narrative. If you watch your life carefully, you'll find that what happens to Jesus here happens to you and I, often. After a spiritual high point, praise God, I've had my prayers answered. Brian as well, right? You, you had your prayers answered. You had a major spiritual breakthrough, a victory. You're on top of the world. It's not uncommon that at that moment when you least expect it, Satan fires away at you with temptation. Your guard is down. In, the, in this gospel, about a dozen chapters over, it happens with Peter. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he says, who do you say that I am? And 
everybody shuts up and only Peter says, I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. A plus, says Jesus, right? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. He's on a spiritual high. The next thing that happens in this gospel, in that chapter, is Jesus tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and they're going to kill me. And Peter, yes, the same Peter, a moment later, says, may it never be. You will never go to the cross. And Jesus says, wait for it, get behind me, Satan. Wow. From the peak to the valley, right? So we need to be on guard for temptation. There are great lessons for everybody in this Bible study, everybody in the world, because everybody is tempted. So here it comes. Jesus, I want you to notice, is not in the wilderness of his own accord. He's led there by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. After coming through the water of baptism, he's led to the wilderness to be tested. We mentioned the Adam and Eve test, didn't we? There's another test that this parallels, and that is the Jews. They cross through the water of the Red Sea, and then they're tested in the wilderness. Like Adam and Eve, the Jews fail that test miserably. They complain, they are angry with God, they complain against Moses, and what have you. Jesus, this is the third test, he's the only one that's going to fulfill God's will and not fall to temptation. So he's led there for the purpose, verse 1, to be tempted by the devil. I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure none of us, including me, has ever been tempted by the devil himself. Very unusual that you, this would happen. The devil is not omnipresent like God. God can be everywhere at once. The devil is not. He's an angel. He's highly, uh, very powerful, very wise. He's been at this game a long time. But I would think the devil tempts very powerful, big, famous preachers and presidents and kings. I don't think he'd bother with me or you. Maybe, but we are tempted, aren't we? Demons, which are lower uh, fallen angels, if you will, might tempt us. We're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's been said. We'll talk more about that in a second. So there he is. That's why he's there. Now, verse 2 is shocking. Anybody here ever fasted for 40 days? <laughs> wow. This is not a crash diet. This is 40 is the number of sin and of judgment. It rains in Noah's flood. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. How long are the Jews in the wilderness? 400 years, a multiple of 40, right? Interestingly, Elijah and Moses both fasted 40 days. Now, you may say, wouldn't he be dead? Okay, first of all, I think it's supernatural that he's still alive. Um, you can go 29 days without food. You're not having a great time after day four or five, and you're losing weight. You know, it's a crash diet, right? <laughs> no, that's not why he's doing it either. He would be drinking water, though, throughout. But it's a miracle God keeps him alive. But if you think you're hungry when you skip a meal or two or three, can you imagine how hungry Christ is? There's a thing, you ever heard this word? Not angry, not hungry, but you ever heard this word? Hangry? Are you like me? If I'm hungry, I can 
get a little snippy with people. Um, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's kind of a duh, isn't it? Right. Of course he was hungry. How hungry was he? Was I? Was he? Unbelievably. He's going to be tested just like gold is tested in fire to check purity. This is not so God can find out. It's so that people will find out. And maybe Jesus will find out what he's really made of. And will he rely on God? Remember, he's fully man. This would not be a real temptation if you say he is what scholars call impeccable. The word impeccable in a theological um, discussion means impossible for him to sin. If it's impossible for him to sin, to sin then these aren't really going to be temptations. I believe he could have sinned. Some scholars don't think he could have. I believe he could have. He doesn't have a sin nature, but I believe he could have chosen just like Adam didn't have a sin nature. Adam and Eve chose. So I think these are real uh, temptations. We talked about Satan already. Um, for him to be the Messiah, the sinless sacrifice, he cannot sin even once. Satan knows this. If Satan can get him to sin just one time, he's disqualified Jesus. And we're back to square one. Uh, we already talked about that. Jesus just had a high moment. He just got baptized by John the Baptist. And the Spirit of God descended like a dove. Do you remember? And God the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Talk about a spiritual high. After that, off to the wilderness for testing. So maybe he's more vulnerable because he's hungry. Verse 3, the tempter, one of the names for the devil, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Pretty simple. Is there anything in the Bible that says thou shalt not make bread out of stones? No. So it's not breaking a commandment. Pretty crafty on Satan's part. How, what's his condition? Unbelievably hungry. What does he want? Food. When does he want it? Now, right? Could Jesus have made bread out of stones? Absolutely. Could make breads out, bread out of nothing, right? In fact, the, the loaves and the fish miracle is a miracle of multiplication. It's really creating more bread, more fish, more bread, more fish, on and on and on. Could he have done it? Absolutely. But he, would it be a sin if he does it? Absolutely. Whose advice is he taking? Satan's. That's number one. Did God tell him to do that? No. If you read all four Gospels, does Jesus perform miracles? Yes, again and again and again. Does Jesus ever perform a miracle for himself? Answer, never. Never. It's always someone that's sick, someone that's dead, and he's bringing them back to life. A demon-possessed person. His disciples are freaking out with a storm, and he says, shh, and the whole storm stops. But he never performs a miracle for his own benefit. That would be a sin. He is there to serve, not himself, others. He's not getting making the stones into bread so he can feed other people. He would be munching down himself. So yes, it would be a sin if he 
did it. Hebrews says that he was tempted, listen to this, in all things as we are, yet without sin. Meaning you can't say Jesus was never tempted like this. Whatever temptation affects you and I, he's been through it times a thousand because he was hungry, because it's Satan himself tempting him. So it's, it's a brilliant ploy on the part of the devil to say, just use your power for yourself. Doesn't break any of the Ten Commandments, like we said. Um, and so just like Israel is complaining about bread, remember, they don't like the manna God gave them. Bread comes up in the wilderness again. Um, so that's the temptation. And he could have just made one little loaf to get him through. What's really going on here? Who are you going to obey? Your own lusts, what you need or you think you need, or are you going to obey God and wait? Right? He's waiting for God to say, okay, it's time to eat. At the end of these three temptations, angels come and it says they minister to him. I'm positive they fed him food, right? You wouldn't minister to a hungry person by, you know, giving him a bath or something. That's great, but please, I want a sandwich and fries, right? Okay, if you are the son of God in the Greek the way the word if is there, it really should be translated and can be translated since. He's not questioning whether he's the son of God. He's really saying, since you're the son of God, go ahead and do it. You can. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's right to do it. Amen. So that's the temptation in verse two. Go ahead and help yourself out. Do a miracle. Take a shortcut around God. You know God's going to provide you with food, or do you? Been waiting a long time. You can do it yourself. Hotwire the test and do it yourself. I want you to notice that Satan always questions the word of God. In a second, we're going to go to Genesis 3, where Satan says to Eve, did God really say? You can just stop there. That's what he says to you and me and to the world. Oh, this Bible, did God really say? Questioning God, right? And whether he said this. So that's really what he's saying uh, here is go ahead and do it. Make the bread yourself. Um, I wrote in my notes, will every single person here will be tempted until the day you die or, or until the day Christ returns? No exceptions. And what tempts me would not tempt her or him. We're all different, but Satan's been at this a long time. He knows what would tempt Jeff doesn't tempt me and vice versa. He knows our weak spots and when to strike. So since you're the son of God, prove it. There may have been more to the conversation than these short lines. I don't know. Um, so, but by doing it, he'd be disobeying God, taking Satan's advice, acting independent of the Father. He's there to do the Father's will. We'll look at a verse or two that says that. Um, let's see. So here's Jesus' answer, verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, meaning it's in the word of God. 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is that in a real sense, there's more nourishment in God's word than there is in food, bread. Just a generic term for food, bread. Now, what's fascinating is, on its surface, you understand this, but I'm going to tell you that when we go to Deuteronomy in a second, you can start turning there if you want to, you're going to see there's layers of meaning here that you might not have seen before. So he says, go ahead and make stones. You're hungry, aren't you? Can't, what's implied is you can't really trust God. Do you really want to wait for God? Just do it yourself. It'll be okay. Man shall not live on bread alone. Doesn't deny that man needs bread. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So keeping your finger here, let's go to um, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So go way back to the Old Testament and Genesis, Exodus, keep turning, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Teachers having trouble finding it. Okay, there we go. Chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy. Now in context, we're going to read where Jesus gets his answer. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the New Old Testament, chapter 8. God talking, be careful to follow every command I'm giving today, giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land, that's Israel, that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you. We just read the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Watch. Look at verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the, or in the desert or wilderness these 40 years to what? Humble you. By the way, I said 400 years. They, they wander for 40 years. My, my mistake. Um, to what? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That's the same reason the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus there. He's got to pass this test to prove he can be the king of the Jews. By the way, there's many kings and many um, senators and governors and presidents and what have you. What do they all have in common? They all fail this test. What test? Temptation. They sin. They're all sinners, right? Remember how the Lord led you all the way in the desert 40 years to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He goes on with miracles. The clothes didn't wear out in verse 4. The point is, we need God's word to live. Just as you eat for your body and drink, we need this word not once a week on Tuesday or once a week on Sunday. That's important. You need it every day. May I suggest, if you have an extra Bible or your main Bible, put it where you are a lot of the time in your house. My, I have a Bible where, right next to where I eat. On the, it's on the kitchen table. Because the newspaper's not that interesting, right? But the, God's word is. Um, we have Bibles next to our bed. We have Bibles in the family room. 
uh, all over. Okay, I want to show you something else about uh, nourishment, if I can. Go back to the New Testament, go past Matthew, go to John chapter 4. I sure hope I can find this quickly. I have it in my notes somewhere. Uh, might be on the next page. Chapter 4 is where he meets the woman at the well. He sends his disciples away to get food. He's there all afternoon while they're gone. He's got nothing to eat. Um, and verse 27 Let's see, now we need to skip down from there. Oh, there it is. Meanwhile, verse 31, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something, which implies you haven't eaten anything all day. You gotta be famished. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, which on a human level sounds like I got some stuff stashed. You know, you didn't know I had a candy bar in my back pocket. It's a little melted, but I ate it. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, verse 33, could someone have brought him food? So Jesus, in my opinion, rolls his eyes a little because they don't get it and says in verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Isn't that interesting? I don't think this is symbolic language. I think Jesus gets nourishment spiritually from doing God's will, from obeying. He's been doing that back in Matthew. You can go back to Matthew 4 now. For 40 days. It's not easy fasting that long, but he knows he's doing God's will. He's nourished enough spiritually. He's not going to turn stones into bread. Um, so... Uh, the Bible speaks of God's word as food in 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, and Hebrews 5 as milk. In those contexts, it's usually the brand new Christian. He doesn't know the deep things of God, but it's milk. He's just getting nourishment like a baby would. Then uh, the Bible is called in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, honey. It's also called bread, as we saw, and it's called meat in Hebrews Five. Uh, listen to Jeremiah 15, talking to God. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. There's real nourishment in this book. It's a supernatural book for a number of reasons. Uh, Job 23, 12. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. One, uh, one uh, Christian leader said most Christians feed their bodies with three warm meals a day and one cold snack a week. I'll leave it at that. The Bible says that God's word when eaten, what does it mean that you take a page and eat it? No, it means take it in. Don't, don't, don't speed read the Bible. Read it, take it in, meditate on it. Take it into your spirit, into your mind. There's so many unhealthy things you could be looking at. Look at the word of God. When that happens, Psalm 107, Proverbs 4, it will bring, listen, health to your flesh. Psalm 119, it will give you victory over sin. 1 John 2, it'll provide power over Satan. Jesus knows that one. And it'll impart faith, Romans 10. 
So get the word of God in you. We already talked about the sustenance. Um, Jesus is attempting to resist the devil. How many have heard the verse in James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you? You ever heard that? That's not the whole verse. The most important part is the first part of the sentence. Listen to the whole verse. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Don't resist the devil on your own. Submit first to God. That's what Jesus is doing. He told me to fast. I'm fasting. Beautiful. So uh, we resist temptation. We'll talk more about this as we go. But notice every time there's a temptation, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Does he have a Bible there with him? No. Where is it? It's here, right? As much as you can. I know some people told me, I just can't memorize scripture. I say, I think you can. If I locked you in a room and said, you can't come out until you say the Pledge of Allegiance, could you do it? That's memorization. Could you say the words to verse one of the Star Spangled Banner? Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Could you sing Gilligan's Island theme song, If I Made You, or the Beverly Hillbillies? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's keep rolling. My point is, what better thing to memorize than God's word? So he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He says, Satan, I got enough nourishment from God's word, which is in here and in here. Move on. Verse five, then the devil, notice the devil doesn't answer that with anything. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now in Greek, uh, there's a Greek word there, highest point of the temple, hieron, doesn't mean, doesn't have to be in the very top of the temple. It can mean one of the porticos, but the temple was sort of on a large hill with a drop. Josephus says from where he would be standing, 450 feet drop to the bottom of the valley below. Surely would kill a normal person, right? So it takes him to the holy city, has him stand on the highest point of the temple, verse 5. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Guess who else memorized scripture? Isn't that surprising? Satan can quote scripture. Is he right? No. He's twisting scripture like the Jehovah's Witnesses do and the Mormons do if you've ever spent time with them. So I don't think this is a vision. What do you mean? I think they're really up there, standing there, the two of them, Satan and Jesus, a human being, fully God, fully man. So he says again, if, which is really since you're the son of God, jump, to quote that old Van Halen song, go ahead, might as well jump. God will protect you. Why don't you just test God to see if he really loves you? Is, does the Bible forbid this? Absolutely. S Satan quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, which ass assures the one who trusts God um, uh, from, uh, from divine protection, for divine protection. But it really is from attacks from 
evil ones that are attacking the person, which is ironically Satan attacking Jesus kind of thing. So to test God is to make Jesus do something to act like God's there to serve him instead of the other way around, right? Um, there have been people who've tested God with poison snakes, right? And a lot of them ended up dead because God does not have to, he's not a bellhop where you ring the bell, he's got to come running and he's got to save you. Go, go jogging in the middle of the freeway in between lanes two and three and see what happens. That's a pretty dumb thing to do. God is under no obligation to support our stupidness with protection, right? Is that a word? Stupidity is a better word, right? Okay, so that's the temptation. Throw yourself off, jump off. By the way, the rabbis wrote commentaries, okay? That's not scripture, but some of them theorized that when the Messiah showed up, he would stand on top of the temple and show himself. Did that actually happen? No, that was just their theory. So Satan might have known that as well. He says, if you jump, Satan does in verse six, God will command his angels, they'll catch you. You won't even strike your foot against a stone. What a nice little miracle. Now you may look at this and say, well, is this a sin if he does it? Absolutely, testing God. We're, we're forbidden to test God like this, to try to make God perform. Prove to me that you love me. Boy, that is the wrong thing to do. He's already shown you a thousand ways that he loves you, the greatest of which is his son was given on the cross to pay your debt and mine for sin. So prove your love to me, wrong thing to do. The ultimate love is at the cross, Romans 5, 8, by the way. Okay, first temptation, it's interesting, Satan, watch. The first temptation was, where's God, Jesus? You're starving. Make yourself from some food. God is far off. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Second one, he's at the place where the Jews believed that was the closest place you could be to God. Now you're at the temple. So now, for sure, God's with you, so jump. No problem. Uh, so Satan wants to kill Jesus. It would be a sin if he did this. You could ask theoretically, I thought about it this week, what if Jesus had jumped? I believe that would have been a sin and it would have disqualified him. Would he have died in the fall or would the angels have caught him? I don't know. The important thing is he doesn't listen to Satan, but we do. Whenever we fall, you and I, to temptation, do you know who we're listening to? Satan, who's saying, no one will know. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad of a sin. You're just going to do it this one time. Come on, if it feels good, do it. These are God-given desires, Joe, that he's given you. It's okay. Almost everybody owns one of these, a cell phone, right? The old ones weren't this way, but the newer ones, the last 10 years or so, if Jesse calls me, the phone rings and I can look, and if he's in my contacts, it says, call from Jesse Smith. If I'm too busy, I can choose to not take the call right now. I'll call him later. 
Or if I want to talk to him, I can take the call and talk to Jesse. You say, what does this have to do with Jesus? Does Jesus have a cell phone? No, he didn't need one direct communication. My point is this. When Satan tempts you and me, you know what it says here? Satan's calling. Don't take the call. Refuse the call. I'm just going to talk to him for a second. What do you want, Satan? Don't take the call. In other words, that thought comes in your mind, not through the phone, but through your mind or something on television or something you're reading or a memory in your past or a desire. Instantly, don't take the call. Replace it with scripture just like Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't want to think about that. God, take this temptation from me. Immediate. Don't entertain the call. Don't take the call. Okay. So go ahead and jump, Jesus. Jesus answered, verse 7. It is also written, do not put the Lord God to the test. Don't do it. God has proven himself enough ways we are not to test God. Uh, so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 16 and 17, which is the word applied correctly, not twisting scripture. How are we doing on time? We're good. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Those of you on Zoom, awake? We got sound? I should, I should mess with the people on Zoom and go like this. Now, you heard them laugh, so you know I'm just messing around. Okay. Jesus quotes Scripture right back. Trust and obey God. Don't demand anything from God to prove his love. So God's far off. Make some bread. God's close. He'll take care of you. Go ahead. Trying to, to uh, tempt Jesus to sin. Satan should have known because listen to John 8, 28. Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing, listen to this, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what the Father taught me. He's there to just obey God. Guess what? You know who else is? You, me. We have our own little agendas. If our four, the, the focus of our lives is this word and obeying it and obeying the one who loves us, we won't get into the trouble that we can. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Same chapter, John chapter 8. Um, we already talked about that. Satan, by the way, skips the fact that God protects those who are loyal to him. By testing God, Satan had, 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 would have gotten Jesus to prove he wasn't loyal to God. He's testing him. Okay, so I believe Satan was really there and there really were rocks and Jesus could have changed them into bread. I believe they were really on the top of the temple. I don't know if anybody saw them up there. Satan's a spirit, probably invisible, but Jesus would have been up there. I don't think anybody saw them, but I think it was real and he could have jumped and he didn't. But the next temptation, I believe, is a vision. I'll show you why. Um, so still in Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. In the parallel uh, passage in Luke with the same temptation, Luke adds the words and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. Impossible. There's no mountain high enough where you could see 
Egypt and Rome and Tokyo and Beijing and Washington DC and Mexico City and do I need to go on? There's no way. I think it's a vision. Uh, in any case, the temptation is, shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this, Satan says, I will give you. If you will bow down and worship me. Nobody's injured. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody has to know. It's just you and me, Jesus. Here's your shortcut to Messiahship. All the kingdoms of the world. Satan knows scripture. He knows Christ is going to return and rule on the earth. But you got to go through that bloody, painful, shameful, horrible death on the cross. I'm offering you a shortcut. Beware of shortcuts. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, oh, Satan, you liar. You can't offer me the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. You know why he doesn't say that? Because Satan is the small g, God of this world. The whole world lies in the grip of the evil one, the Bible says. You say, wait, 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 wait. Who created the world? God. How did we get in this mess? Answer, who did God give dominion over the earth to? Adam and his wife, Mrs. Adam, Eve, right? What happened? By obeying Satan instead of God in the Garden of Eden, everything changed. Death, sickness, injury, disease, uh, crime, murder, every bad thing you can think of started at that second. And Satan became, small g, the god of this world. Is he sovereign? Can he do anything? No. God limits him in terms of what he can do and for how long. There's coming a day when Christ returns and Satan goes to jail for a thousand years. I can't wait for that, right? I'm not going to visit him in jail, are you? I'm not, no. Very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, the riches, the glory, the incredible you know, farms and all the wealth of the world. I'll give it all to all the people. It's all yours, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down and worship Satan. Listen, Satan has wanted this forever. Keep your finger here. Now we'll go to Isaiah 14. So roughly the middle of your Bible, past uh, Psalms and all that, go to Isaiah chapter 14. These are the two scriptures that explain how did Satan become Satan. I mentioned them earlier. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, we'll pick it up in verse 12, uh, 12, yes. Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. This is Satan. I'm going to accent one word to explain the whole problem. Watch. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend, verse 14, above the tops of the clouds. I, here it comes, will make myself like the most high God. Translation, I want your job, God. 
I'm not happy just being the music guy and an angel, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Okay, now Ezekiel, well, we won't go there now, but you get the idea. Pride is the big sin. I, I, I. Satan wants worship. He'll take it any way he can get it. But there's one place it would be the ultimate for him, and that's if God, Jesus Christ, would bow down and worship him. Jesus, Satan says, I'm offering you a shortcut. You can skip the cross, the blood, the arrest, the whipping, the beating, the spitting, the mocking. Hearing your fellow countrymen say, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Remember all that? You can skip it all. Just worship me. Would it be a sin to worship Satan? Absolutely, right? The biggest sin of all. One last thing about Satan. Two more, actually. There's two extremes you need to avoid with Satan. There are Christians that say, I had an uncle that said this to me. You know, I know the Bible mentions the devil, Satan. I, I don't believe there's a Satan. I think it's just a personification of evil. I don't believe there's a Satan or demons. Stuff happens in the world that's evil. Yes, I don't believe there's a Satan. Wrong. You know who believed there was a Satan? Jesus and all the other Bible writers, Bible book writers. Other extreme, you ever meet people like this? There's a demon behind every rock. You sneeze. <laughs> oh, the demon of sneezing. I rebuke you, demon of sneezing and demon of injury and sickness. Be away from Joe immediately. Give me a break. We need to focus so much on God. We're not even worried about Satan and think about him. But don't go up against him alone. Wear the full armor of God. Let's take our two-minute break, and then we'll continue. Don't go away. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. We'll be right back. I'll see you in one minute. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Hopefully you can hear what I'm saying. Anyway, we are right toward the end of our temptations of Christ. There are three of them. We'll look at an overview of them in a second, but um, I believe this is a vision Satan is giving Jesus of every kingdom of the world. I believe it extends beyond time. In other words, I believe he, Satan could show Jesus the United States of America in 1960 if, and the splendor of this community and, and this nation or today or whatever you want. All the kingdoms of the world, I believe Satan could deliver it and that would disqualify Jesus forever and Jesus knows it. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Proskuneo, is, worship is putting your face down because the one that you're worshiping, you are saying, is greater than you. Jesus would never do this, obviously. It implies not only superiority, but it implies dependence. If I'm worshiping something, I am saying I am dependent on whatever I'm worshiping. Okay, for my spiritual life, for everything I have, for my health, whatever you want to say. Um, let's see. And it, of course, it implies loyalty and all of that. Imagine, I, I can't even imagine it, Jesus bowing down to Satan. So that's the temptation. Um, Satan is called the God of this world. We already talked about that. 
um, 2 Corinthians. And we talked about how he did he get the world, yes. Um, Satan's domain, this is comforting, is only over unbelievers. He used to have control of your life if you were an unbeliever at one time, and I'm guessing you were like me. He had control. The whole world is in the lies in the snare of the evil one, the trap of the evil one. Um, Jesus calls unbelievers, the Pharisees in John 8, th that they are of their father, the devil. Satan's domain does not include believers. He does not rule over you. The only bummer is you live in his world. We're behind enemy lines, right? So the world, expect the world, do not like your Christianity in our schools, on television, uh, in movies, all of that kind of thing. Expect it to be ridiculed. But Satan, we have a different allegiance, right, to God. Satan's temptations always promise some benefit. Did you notice in each case? Your hunger will be gone. He's deprived and he's tired and he's hungry. You get your hunger relieved right away. That's a, that is a need of the flesh, the human body. Um, the second, um, let's see. Yeah, the third temptation has to do with where's Jesus? He's alone with the wild animals we learned from another gospel. No significance, no notoriety, obscurity. Satan says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Everybody will know you. Everybody will love you. But he'll be his man. That's the problem. Interestingly, if you believe uh, the end time scenario, most Christians believe what Satan offered Jesus, Satan's going to make that offer again to a man called the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will say, deal. He'll be a one world leader indwelt by, empowered by Satan. I expect him to be a military genius, brilliantly smart, an unbelievable speaker. I believe he'll be charismatic. And your unbelieving friends, when the Antichrist shows up, will say to you, you don't like him? He solved so many problems and the poor are now getting food. And, and you and I, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, if we're here at that time, we'll know instantly this guy's bad news. Someone else will take the bait. Um, he has to wait indefinitely. Satan offers in instant results. Um, so Satan gets an answer from Jesus. Verse 10, do you see it there? Go, Satan, or be gone, Satan, or away from me, Satan. I like get lost, loser. That's not, maybe that's the Joe translation, but for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now that's, you, we could spend all night on that verse. Worship God only, serve him only. What things are worshiped in our world? It might surprise you that there are thousands of them. Is money worshipped? Absolutely. Good looks? Yes. Fame? Yes. Power is worshipped. Um, 
but all kinds of achievements are worshiped and awards and PhDs and education is worshiped for some people and it's different for everybody. Some, for some people, it's possessions that are worshiped. There are people that worship sex, drugs, all kinds of things. The thing is, worship, that act of worship is reserved for one person. What's interesting is twice in the book of Revelation, if you remember, John is so overwhelmed by what the angel is telling him that he just is overwhelmed and he bows down to the angel. Do you remember? Both times the angel says, no, 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 get up, don't do that, right? Worship God. When we worship Jesus Christ, we are worshiping God. We can worship Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. All three are the one God. Away with you, Satan. James is right. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I heard a sermon one time that said, the reason he'll flee is because he likes easy pushover targets. He doesn't want to have to really fight for it. In the parallel passage of Luke. Um, see verse 11, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Luke says, then the devil left him for a more opportune time. I believe, there may have been others, but I believe that time was the Garden of Gethsemane. Look what you're going to have to go through. Remember, sweating drops of blood and a major temptation in a garden, just like Adam and Eve, a major temptation in a garden to disobey God. Jesus is so tempted there, but without sin, Hebrews says, but he's so tempted. Do you remember? He prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup of the cross and the whipping and the beating and the asphyxiation of losing my breath on a cross, bleeding out. If it's possible, take that away from me. But then what does he say very quickly? but not my will, your will be done. A plus, right, for temptation. Not my will, but your will be done. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil leaves, angels come and attend to him. I think they fed him a feast. I don't know for sure. Maybe he didn't need it because he was, had just obeyed God to such a degree. He has proven he is the ultimate leader of planet earth, the ultimate God, Messiah, King of Israel, who will not succumb to temptation like David, right? What was this temptation? Sex, right? The beauty of a woman watching her on the roof. You can spend all week thinking about that story, David and Bathsheba. What was she doing bathing naked on the roof? Isn't it partly her fault? And He's the king. He's a man after God's own heart. He, sh he should have gone up on his own roof and went, whoa, can't look at that. I'm going inside. My old pastor, Twin Lakes Church, used to say, are you ever at a stoplight men? We had a men's Bible study on Monday morning. This is in Santa Cruz. Are you ever at a stoplight in a car on a hot summer day and in, an incredibly beautiful woman walks across the crosswalk? And being a man, you look, right? He said, the first glance, look, is not a sin. Look away. It's the second and the third and the fourth 
and the imagination starts going, right? There was a guy in that class that raised his hand and said, but could the first look be really long? <laughs> anyway, obviously not, right? Um, let's see. I want you, quickly, let's go to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at the temptation of Adam and Eve with the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. He said to the woman, I'm in verse 1. He's crafty. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? First of all, that's a total lie. That's a total misconception of what God said. Did God say he, they couldn't eat of any tree? No, just the opposite. He said, you can eat of every tree you want, plums, peaches, avocados, anything you want, but there's just one tree you can't eat. Notice how Satan twists scripture and questions God's word. Woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. By the way, God did not say you must not touch it. Isn't that interesting? Maybe embellishment from her, maybe Adam to warn her, don't even get near it, honey. Don't touch it. I don't know. Verse 4, Satan, you will surely not die. It's a lie. God said they would die. They died. For God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, God doesn't. He's trying to keep you down. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you down under his thumb. You'll, uh, your eyes will be opened. They were. They saw that they were naked and they covered up. Remember? And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That wasn't a blessing for them. They weren't like God. They knew good, good from evil, and it wasn't a blessing. The whole world has been in the clutches of the evil one ever since. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, lust of the flesh, I'm quoting 1 John 2. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. John, in his epistle, number one, says those are the three hearts of the things that tempt people. Thing number one, saw. You see it? She saw. Lust of the eyes. That's that long look at the girl crossing, or guy, ladies, crossing the crosswalk, or on television, or whatever. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life. I'll be like God. What an offer from Satan. You have to grade on a curve with Adam and Eve because they had never encountered Satan before. I don't know how much God warned them about him. However, they didn't have 10 commandments or five or two. They had one stinking commandment. Do whatever you want. Don't eat from that tree, right? But it's just like at a park. You ever been at a park and the, there's a park bench, bright green, and it says wet paint? And you just have to go, oh, it's wet. Hello, don't touch it, right? Human nature. 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate some. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Where was Adam? The leader of the family, the spiritual leader, doesn't say a word. It implies he was there just watching the little dialogue between the two of them. Where's the spiritual leader of the family? He should have warned her and said, don't do it, honey. Let's go. Don't take the call. They could have hung up their cell phones and moved on, but they didn't. They cover up afterwards. Okay, back to Matthew. Still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. On Zoom, anybody still there? I don't see anybody sleeping, but there's a few people that are close. All right. So Satan offers promises that aren't kept. Shortcuts, recognition. You know, you can really get ahead in life if you just steal at work. You can buy that boat you want or that car and cheat on the test. Promote yourself. No suffering. Skip that. You can have your best life now. You know who wrote a book called Your Best Life Now? Joel Osteen. I don't want my best life now. My best life is ahead of me, right? In heaven. Okay. You can have health, wealth, prosperity. That's what a lot of teachers in churches teach. Do you know why they teach that? Because it fills the pews. Much better than in this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Hello, that's scripture. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say you can have everything hunky-dory in this world. You're behind enemy lines. You're going to have tribulation. I want you to notice something else. It is not a sin to be tempted. How do you know that, Joe? Because Jesus was tempted in all things, yet without sin. It becomes a sin when you give in to it right? To whatever degree you give into it. But Satan knows something else, and that is that sin is the most addicting thing in the world. More than heroin, more than crack, more than cigarettes, more than alcohol, more than you name it, gambling, pornography, those are all addictive. Sin is more addictive than anything. Just going to do it once. No, you're not. Like Lay's potato chips, remember? Bet you can't eat just one. They're right. You can't. Put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6. We just finished Ephesians a few, a month and a half ago or so, month ago. The full armor of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises you that you will never be tempted beyond your strength. Anybody remember the 1960s, a black comedian named Flip Wilson? He used to say, the devil made me do it. Remember that? In other words, it's not my fault. The Wrong. It's your fault. Don't take the call. Sin always has consequences. Listen to this. Sometimes lifelong consequences. Lifelong. From that one mistake, September 3rd, 1990, or whatever the date was. Don't do it. Jesus wins this bottle, battle or bottle the way Adam never did and the way Israel didn't in the wilderness. He comes through the water and the glory of the baptism is tested after a high point and comes through it with flying colors because he trusts his father completely. Yes, we talked about that. One more thing. There's a word in Greek called thamia. 
T-H-U-M-I-A, Thumia. I've told you this before. The word means desires. That's all it means. Not good or bad, just desires. In other words, hunger is a desire. That's natural. That's why you eat, right? It keeps you alive. Thirst is a normal desire. We have a normal desire to be associated with other people, to have friends, people that are sort of on our team that I know I could call Jeff if I need something or Chris or whoever. All these are just thumia. They're just desires, not good or bad. The Bible for sin uses the word epithumia, like over desires. Watch how every sin is a godly desire taken to extremes. Watch. I need to eat to keep myself alive. Thumia, it's just a desire. Epithumia, I'm a glutton. I weigh 950 pounds. I, I'll eat my food, your food, and her food if I get the chance. I need acceptance from people to be friends. Thumia, desire. Epithumia, I'm willing to sleep with anyone to get love, right? I'm willing to lie, cheat, steal to make friends and influence people. Epithumia. I, uh, thumia, sorry, desire. I want to provide for my family. I work at a job. I can earn money and provide for my family. Desire. God-given. God work is a God-given thing. Garden of Eden. Adam was a farmer, basically. Epithumia. I want more money and stuff than you, than everybody. I want to be so rich, I'm willing to steal, to lie, to cheat, to do anything to get ahead. I'm willing to step on your neck to step over you for that promotion. Every sin is epithumia. I want inner peace and joy. By the way, the kind that only God gives. God-given, right? God has placed eternity in their hearts, Ecclesiastes says. Blaise Pascal said that inside every human being, you can't see it with an x-ray, but there's a God-shaped hole or vacuum. And everybody knows it. I feel empty. So you can stuff money in there and more money and fame and power and good looks and sex and drugs and rock and roll and anything else. Nothing will fulfill it. I want that joy and fulfillment that only comes from God. Epithumia, I'm willing to use drugs, I'm willing to get drunk, I'm willing to do whatever to numb myself to imitate that feeling. That's Satan's bad counterfeit for the real deal. There. See, when someone's phone goes off, that means I said something correct. So that's the <laughs> first time all night. Okay. Um, Jesus, folks, is our ultimate high priest. He's tempted he never sins. He's our ultimate king. That's why he could die on the cross for your sins, because he was the sinless one. When you go to Jesus and say, I am so tempted, please help me, he does not say, I can't relate to that. He says, been there, been tempted in all things, and yet without sin. What an awesome high priest. Uh, okay. The devil left him for a more opportune time, Luke says. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people, he's quoting the Old Testament, living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Okay, let's take that little section starting in verse 12. So, uh, Jesus is about to start his ministry. But the first thing that happens is he hears that John's been put into prison. If you're keeping time records in your head, Jesus uh, has, John has been preaching for a little more than a year, and Jesus has been ministering for about a year. He hears John's been put into prison, and he withdraws to Galilee. Now, from a human standpoint, if you heard that about someone, you would say, oh, he was afraid. He wasn't afraid. It wasn't the time for him to get arrested just like John the Baptist did. When the time comes, he goes right into the heart of the beast and goes to Jerusalem, challenges Pilate and the Jews, overturns the, the temple tables and what have you. But he goes to Gentile, to Gentile country, Galilee. There are Jews there too, but it's a very Gentile place. Why? Matthew wants you to know he leaves Nazareth and goes there to Capernaum because that was predicted that he would do that in the Old Testament. Okay, but there's something else going on there here, and I want you to see it. Go to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke fills in some blanks in his version of the gospel story. He's an amazing, <clears throat> excuse me, writer and researcher. Luke chapter 4, and starting in verse 16. He goes to Nazareth, where he was brought up. He's in Nazareth, sorry. This is the reason he leaves Nazareth. I'm going to cut to the chase and just read you certain verses here. The reason he leaves Nazareth and makes Capernaum, his headquarters, is twofold. Number one, they kick him out of Nazareth and try to kill him there. I'll show you in a second. And number, this is before what Matthew's writing. And number two, Capernaum is a much bigger city where his gospel can be more heard. So he goes to Nazareth. He preaches in the synagogue uh, and, and quotes from uh, Isaiah 61 and says in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, in a synagogue, it wasn't uncommon for guests who were distinguished people. Oh, look, so-and-so's here. Um, Boyce Bates is here. Would you come up and read? And he would come up and read, and he knows the word. He would read a portion of scripture, and then it would be discussed, questions and answers. Jesus gets to do that. The, the scripture he chooses is, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news, gospel, that's what the word means, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, period. Why did you say that? Because Isaiah, there's no period there. There's a comma and it says, and it speaks about wrath. Why does he leave that out? Does he make a mistake? No. First coming, it's what he just read. Second coming, the wrath of God, the judgment. Then he rolled up the scroll, verse 20. Everyone's looking at him, verse 21, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
meaning it's me, folks. So, <clears throat> uh, so at first they he he speaks to them about full physician heal yourself and all that. Um, no prophet, verse twenty four, is accepted in his hometown. This is his hometown, Nazareth. I'm skipping down. Verse twenty eight. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, that's Nazareth, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. This is a, want to see a miracle now? The whole town has him in custody. Okay? He's got a few disciples, by the way, not many. Verse 30. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. How do you explain that? We've got at least one former law, law enforcement person here. Imagine a whole crowd of a town grabbing one person who isn't Hercules. He's a skinny carpenter, right? He fasted 40 days. He's not 800 pounds. And they're ready to throw him off, and he just walks through the crowd, and nobody stops him. It's a miracle, right? Something about him they did Better let him go. That's why he moves to Capernaum. Go back to Matthew. I just wanted you to know that's why he moves. So to fulfill, uh, down in verse 15, uh, Isaiah 9, 1 to 2, predicted that there would be somebody coming to Galilee. You say, oh, Galilee must be a nice place. No. Galilee was hick country, Okay. If you're from New York, from Los Angeles, from Miami, from Atlanta, from Chicago, from Dallas, from Seattle, San Francisco, some big city, highfalutin city, you look down your nose probably at them farmers in Iowa or them farmers down in Alabama. Okay, this is hick country. Galilee is hick country. A bunch of Gentiles. There's nothing to do there. It's why there? The people, verse 16 living in darkness wow spiritual darkness have seen a great light it's jesus on those in, living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned john chapter 7 you know what he says about himself i'm the light of the world from that time on verse 17 jesus began to preach and by the way this is all preparing us for this is an encapsulated, compressed story of Jesus' preaching in one paragraph. Why? Because Matthew always does this. And then there's a huge teaching. The teaching that's coming is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, considered the greatest sermon ever preached. The, the More books have been written on those three chapters of the Bible than any other. We, we're going to get to that. But Matthew wants you to know, here's what happens between the, he got baptized, God spoke, the spirit descended, he got tested, he, he beat Satan handily in the test. Now this is just an encapsulation. He wants you to know why he moved, that the great light. Now we get preaching. And the sermon is about nine words. That's all it is. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Who already said that? John the Baptist, right? Same message. We know from the other Gospels that his ministry, Jesus's, believe it or not, was one of, for the first year, baptism. 
Jesus baptizing? No, his disciples baptizing. That's in one of the other gospels, at least one. But encapsulated version of the gospel. Repent, turn away from your sin, turn toward God. Of, of, of sorrow for your sin here and here that works itself out in the way you change, the way you live, because you want to obey God. A U-turn on the road of life spiritually. Repent for the kingdom, we said last week. To have a kingdom, you got to have a king. He's it. Of heaven, kingdom of God, the other gospels call it, same thing. He is the representative of God on earth. It's come near. It's here. If you read theologians, I just want to warn you about this, this kingdom of God thing, most will tell you it's already happening, it's here, and yet it's still future. You say, well, what does that mean? You sound like a politician. It's here now. God, Christ is reigning now in your life and mine, not in your neighbor that's a Satanist or your neighbor that's a thief or an adulterer or whatever drug addict but he's reigning now spiritually. So it is happening now in a sense. It is still future in a sense in that when Christ returns, he'll reign for real in person on the throne of his father David from Jerusalem, the whole world for reals, as the kids used to say. Not spiritually, just among believers, everyone. Okay, spiritual light, Jesus is, darkness, uh let's see we already talked about that <laughs> uh so he preaches uh and now let's see him call a few disciples and we'll quit we got about five minutes if my watch is right yeah we do four verse uh verse 18 as jesus was walking beside the sea of galilee which is really a small lake the jews called lakes sea it's also called the sea of tiberius the sea of gennesaret there's a bunch of names for it it's a lake 10 miles by 14 miles at its wide. i think at its widest point it's not huge uh walking beside the sea of galilee he saw two brothers simon called peter and his brother andrew they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen verse 19 come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. You say, this sounds like they never met him before. He just says those words. Listen, they had met him. They had heard him preach for a year. They had seen miracles. They had already hung out with them. Peter's brother, brother, uh, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. He knew about the repent thing. He knew about the behold the Lamb of God thing. They knew Jesus. They had hung out with him. But this was a formal call from Jesus. Come, follow me. What you see here is that the call of God is sovereign and irresistible. I don't think Peter or his brother Andrew could have said, no thanks. I think he had been, the Holy Spirit had been tugging on their hearts for weeks, for months, maybe for the better part of a year. And I'll bet you, Peter, if you could talk to him, would have said, fishing just isn't the same for me anymore. Something's different. 
my friends, I got drunk with my friends last night. It just was such a mess. Jesus shows up at the right time and says, follow me. I want you to notice they follow and they leave some things behind. The woman at the well leaves her pot behind. Um, you always follow him and leave some things behind. So that's a net loss. No, never. It's always a net gain. What you get from him is way better than whatever you left behind. Can I get an amen? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he's calling disciples. He From John chapter 1, we know he's already got a few, whoops, other disciples that he has called. Um, this is still early on. He's nowhere near 12 yet, though. Um, so, gosh, we don't have time to go to John 1, so we'll do that next week. But, uh, yeah, uh, rabbis always had disciples. Rabbis were teachers. And it was not come to class from 2 to 5 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you became a disciple of a rabbi, if I was a rabbi and you were my disciple, you would go where I went. You, we would hang out together all day long into the night. That's how you learn from somebody that knows more than you. He's getting disciples like a rabbi. Fishers of men is a great picture of evangelism, isn't it? Fishermen, we got one, at least one here. Fishing's hard work. Fishing takes patience, right? You ever put your line in and start reeling them in? I mean, maybe sometimes, but you've got to be patient. Um, I'm tempted to tell a family story, but I won't. Anyway, um, about fishing. Uh, but it's not the only analogy for the gospel. There's also the shepherd seeking lost sheep, workers in a field, harvesting. There's all kinds of analogies God uses. But Next week, we'll look at this little summary, and then uh, you got to come back because the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is so deep. So your assignment is read chapters 5, 6, and 7, and tell me what the heck is going on there. Some people think the Sermon on the Mount is what you have to do to be saved. Some people think it is something that should be adopted by nations, and it's a code of conduct that you have to do. What's really going on in the Sermon on the Mount? Next week, we'll talk about Kirby vacuums. Anybody know what a Kirby vacuum is? They used to come door to door and sell Kirby vacuums. Well, how do I know this? We bought a Kirby, Kirby vacuum. I know it seems like that has nothing to do with the gospel. I'm going to show you why Jesus is selling vacuum cleaners next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We can enjoy your word together, Father, and grow. Tonight, Father, it was filet mignon with potatoes, salad, vegetables, dessert, spiritual food from you. And you served it up, and you taught it, and you wrote it, and it's, it's all you, Father. Help us to be aware of the fact that besides food and drink, we need spiritual food, not once a week, not twice a week, but all day long. Make us hearers and doers of your word. Thank you for this time. We love you, God. We can't wait to see you, but in the meantime, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. They're waiting to see if you'll talk to them today. Thank you, those of you on Zoom. God bless you. We'll see you next time.